Chapter 13 Christology and the Void One of the misunderstandings which plagues a high doctrine of Christ is that adherents of a low Christology fail to see Christ in such thinking. When Van Til, in line with Reformed thinking, speaks of God, he speaks of the ontological and economical trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. In popular thinking and in low Christologies, the word God is reserved to the Father, and there is an implicit and explicit subordination which reserves a junior status and an almost vice-presidential nature to the second and third persons of the Trinity. To speak directly of the Son and the Holy Ghost as God runs counter to their thinking and seems almost confusion. Such persons therefore fail to see Christ adequately treated because, for them, he must be considered in subordination to and in isolation from the Trinity. Another tendency which plagues current Christology is the neo-Orthodox thinking which ostensibly is Christocentric because it considers the Christ of Scripture a higher universal than the Father. Being indifferent to God in himself and concerned with God in relationship, and finding the deity exhaustively revealed in relation, neo-orthodoxy centers its focus on Christ because it has no other focus. But the Christ, it centers its attention upon is hardly recognizable. The results of critical biblical scholarships are fully accepted. The historical Jesus is separated from the Christ, and the Christ becomes the universal participation in whom constitutes the essence of being a person and being saved. All men are lost and saved, reprobate and elect, in terms of this correspondence. The essence of God is revelational activity, and the essence of man is faith. Hence, God must reveal himself, as is known in the Christ, in activity, while man must inherently believe, since such is his nature. Neo-Orthodoxy thus tends towards universalism. All men must eventually be saved because all men are men only as they believe. Similarly, God is God only as he reveals himself in revelational activity, supremely in the idea of the Christ. Thus God to be God must be fully involved in history, become fully involved in contingency, lay aside all his incommunicable attributes, if he has any, and become the opposite of himself. From liberal sources, neo-orthodoxy has been criticized as a St. Vitus dance in no man's land. Its Christology can be further described as a ladder in empty space, reaching from nowhere to nowhere. Neo-orthodoxy can say God was in Christ because there was then no God apart from Christ. In that revelational activity, God was exhaustively present. The incarnation for Barth, for example, was God's complete humiliation and self-sacrifice, and he can even speak of God's suffering, death, and perdition. The completeness of God's humiliation in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and the boundlessness of the self-sacrifice he accomplished here, lies in his taking upon himself as man everything which man's rebellion against him has made inevitable, suffering and death, but also perdition and hell punishment in time and in eternity, in utter disregard of the fact that this is not worthy of him as God. Where does God remain in what still remains his, as God, when God's Son has been slain on Calvary? Barth is unwilling to say explicitly what is implicit in this approach, and indeed he will rebel at the logical conclusion of his thinking. But it remains true, nonetheless, that if God became exhaustively man, then man can and will become exhaustively God. 
having insisted that God must be identical with Christ, so that Christ is left unrelated to the ontological trinity. How can he avoid any man's insistence that man must be identical with God when man is elect man? More than that, the neo-orthodox doctrine of correspondence and election tends this same end. As a result, the emphasis of neo-orthodoxy on the lordship of Jesus Christ, as opposed to the supposedly static conception of the sovereignty of God, is deceptively Christocentric and actually anthropocentric. Christology disappears into anthropology if the ontological trinity is removed from this picture. Christ then becomes not the mediator between God and man, but the essence of man's possibility and potentiality, and at the same time the exhaustive manifestation of a divinity involved and enmeshed in time and having no independent existence beyond history. Because for Barth creation is not literally true, the creator-creature distinction is equally not literally true, and salvation becomes participation rather than regeneration. As Van Til has observed in commenting on Barth's Christology, For as God himself descended with us into pure contingency, we shall rise with him into pure truth. As God, in his pre-temporality, was free for us, and through his virgin birth, death and burial became contingent with us, so we shall through his super-temporality become eternal with him. There is now no possible doubt for us. Our sins, that is, our pure contingency, are now washed away. For God has borne them, and is bearing them ever, but in relationship to his resurrection always. We realize now that we could not have sinned otherwise than in the Christ. Hence, we know that, though reprobate and pure contingency, we shall be saved by pure rationality. And what is true for one is true for all. As with God all are buried, so with God shall all be made alive. None are reprobate, that are not reprobate in Christ. This is implied in the balance that Barth would maintain between the supertemporality of God as standing for pure rationality and the pre- and post-temporality of God as together standing for pure contingency. Keeping in balance the three ideas of God's pre-, super-, and post-temporality, says Barth, will save us, on the one hand, from all secularization, which is systematization, and on the other hand, from all the problematics that are inherent in the idea of pure temporality as such. From this it appears that Barth's Trinitarian form of statement is really intended to provide for the two critical motifs of pure contingency and pure rationality, the two being kept in balance. Bruner can speak of Christ becoming flesh in the sense that flesh means the brutal solidity of the facts of sensible existence, but it is not the traditional interpretation which assumes that the eternal entered the temporal, because the breaking through of the eternal into time does not in any way result in any visible historical phenomenon. This is, as Van Til observes, historical relativism. Because there is no true concept of eternity, there can be no valid concept of time. Because there is no God in himself, there is no meaningful history. The concept of a supra-historical fall leads to a supra-historical Christ, unrelated to the ostensibly hard realities of biblical criticism. The historical becomes only a certain superficial aspect of reality. It is thus possible to become contemporaneous and even identical with Christ because Christ is supra-historical and because being is being and is not differentiated into created and uncreated. 
as Van Til analyzes this approach in Barth. It is to get beyond the reach of all historical and speculative relativism that Barth introduces his conception of primal history or revelation time. Revelation time and its activity is constantly spoken of as the opposite of systematic relationship. Barth's doctrine of the freedom of God, as it finds expression in what he says on the Incarnation, may again be said to be extremely rationalistic. His very attempt to escape all forms of natural theology marks it as such. This attempt seems at first blush to be simply irrationalistic. It is apparently by his constant insistence on the discontinuity of revelation time with systematic interpretation alone that he seeks to escape consciousness theology. But back of this lies the search for a unity that is so high as to make all other unities subordinate to it. God cannot exist apart from his revelation in Christ. God cannot reveal himself in the cosmos and the mind of man through ordinary history prior to Christ. God cannot reveal himself at all in history as such. All this is once more to say, in effect, that the subject of which Barth speaks is the individual, that is, reality as a whole. There can be only one such reality. This reality has two aspects. The Father stands for the aspect of pure contingency, and the Son in his incarnation for that of pure rationality. Reinhold Niebuhr is at this point more plain-spoken than others. In speaking of the biblical concepts of resurrection and judgment, he declares, It is important to take biblical symbols seriously, but not literally. If they are taken literally, the biblical conception of a dialectical relation between history and the superhistory is imperiled. For in that case, the fulfillment of history becomes merely another kind of time history. If the symbols are not taken seriously, the biblical dialectic is destroyed. Because in that case, concepts of an eternity are connoted in which history is destroyed and not fulfilled. Unless we begin with the ontological trinity and with the sovereign and secret counsel of God as determinative of all history, we destroy time and history. By attempting to avoid the Christian concepts of eternity and the ontological trinity, neo-orthodoxy ends up refusing to accept true history, which becomes merely time history and seeks refuge in the limbo of the supra-historical, in what is neither time nor eternity, fish or fowl, but a retreat into relativism. Christology cannot exist in this vacuum. It becomes a disguised anthropology and an evasion of theology, and the current demand for Christocentric thinking is largely that. Van Til's Christology is in line with Chalcedon and all Christian orthodoxy. The second person of the ontological trinity, very God of very God, became very man of very man, but the divine and human natures were in union rather than confusion. Two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The reality of the eternal and temporal are maintained. The eternal is always independent and prior to the temporal, but the temporal is real because undergirded by the secret counsel of God. Because time is real and the fall is real, the incarnation is necessary to bring man back to God and to his responsibility as a creature created in the image of God. The meaning of time must be seen in terms of the plan of God, and therefore history cannot have meaning except in terms of the counsel of God. 
Christ as Redeemer and Mediator redeems man from the meaningless of his relativism begotten of sin, and as Mediator brings him back to his true relationship to God. As prophet, he reinstates man in true knowledge. As priest, he not only makes atonement and intercedes for us, but establishes that the question of knowledge is basically an ethical question. As king, he subdues us in order to give us true knowledge and to establish us in our kingly role. Inevitably, the more clearly and fully our theology and philosophy make their starting point in the ontological trinity of Scripture, the more fully and clearly our dependence on the Chalcedon doctrine of the Christ becomes. The doctrine of the ontological trinity requires a high Christology. It requires a preservation of the meaning of both time and eternity, and it can do so without confusion. The ontological trinity gives validity to both time and eternity without making them two unrelated concepts. Where we have the neo-orthodox concept of the individual and the unity of being, it is inevitably impossible to maintain the old concepts of time and eternity. They become unrelated. Philosophy and theology then wander off into three unhappy tangents. First, only eternity is regarded as real, thereby destroying history. Second, only time is regarded as real, thus destroying meaning and purpose and reducing all to relativism. Or third, an attempt can be made to fuse time and eternity and to escape their tension by resorting to a concept of suprahistory. In each of these three, no mediator is necessary. At best, Christ becomes the idea. There is nothing to mediate, because there are no two kinds of being, created and uncreated. No time as against eternity. No sovereign and self-contained God as against the creature, man. Such Christologies begin and end in themselves. They have no reference to either the biblical God or biblical man, and surely none to the biblical Jesus. They operate in an existentialist void, neither living nor dying in their non-historical moments. The only guarantee of an adequate and biblical Christology is a theology which begins with the ontological trinity. And for this reason, Van Til's Christology is especially significant. For this reason also, his concept of Christ is cosmic in scope envisioning not merely the saving of souls or the supra-historical moment, but the regeneration of all things in terms of the kingdom of God. The ostensible purpose of the new Christology is to preserve the meaning and validity of history. By preserving the meaning of history, it actually means something radically different, namely, to give priority to history or time over eternity. This is very clearly seen, not only in the clearly neo-Orthodox theologians, but in James Don's A Theology of Grace and the State of Theology in the Church, in the September 1957 Reformed Journal. Dane argues against the equal ultimacy of election and reprobation as destructive of history and theology, and in this is followed by Burkauer. Dane believes that the absolutely sovereign God should take time to realize his purpose. It is not surprising that this belief follows immediately after his objection to God's eternal decree as a point of departure. He speaks also of this not-yet-fully-realized aspect of God's purposes with respect to the elect and reprobate. To give meaning to Adam and to time, God's eternal decree, his fully-realized purposes, and his total self-consciousness must be denied or infringed upon. 
Since priority is given to time over eternity, God's self-consciousness cannot precede man's self-consciousness. God cannot fully realize what his purposes for man are until man himself realizes himself. But the only way, as we have seen, that time's meaning can be preserved is in terms of the self-contained God and his eternal decree. The attempt to preserve history thus destroys history, since it introduces chance, undercuts the concept of the ontological trinity, which alone gives particularity and universality, and leads to a flight from history itself into the void of supra-history. The new Christologies are barren and sterile idealisms. The attempt to make Adam independent of the divine decree is an attempt to make man autonomous, either in his being or participant in God's being. The whole drift is to give priority to time and man over eternity in God, and this is neither Christian or is it philosophically tenable. Biblical Christology has meaning because of the eternal decree. Time has meaning because it does not exist in a void. A Christology whose orientation is against the self-contained God and his eternal decree is hardly other than anthropocentric in meaning. To use Christology to war against the ontological trinity is scant recommendation of Christian thinking. To use the name of Christ to attack the triune God is strange procedure and devious strategy. Against all this, the Christology of Christian orthodoxy, which Van Til consistently expounds, is the one effective safeguard. In John A. McKay, we see clearly what the new Christology presupposes, a concept of indifferentiated being in which God, man, and all creation participate, and salvation becomes correspondence and participation. Jesus is thus indeed divine, but so is man as he participates in being. As McKay puts it, redemption, the participation of man in the life of God, is thus found by the seeker to be the meaning and the goal of biblical truth. Jesus Christ said, not in so many words, but in implication, that reality is hierarchical. That means that you have in the universe a graded scale of being. You have God, you have man, you have animals, you have matter, you have also spirits, angelic and satanic. There is a hierarchical nature of things in which true order is achieved when the lower gives obedience to the higher. In terms of this, he can speak of God's will to unity in ecumenical Christianity, because the whole goal of the universe is to achieve unity of being, and Jesus Christ has closed the great rift in the universe. The result of all this is, both in McKay and in Princeton Seminary, as Van Til points out, a vague mysticism in which God is not God, man is not man, and Christ is not Christ. And nothing else is possible from such a concept of being. The only ground for the biblical doctrine of Christ is the biblical conception of the self-contained God. The new Christology leads directly into the void of undifferentiated being from whence it came.